Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Kirsty Elliott-Sale. So Kirsty is a professor of female endocrinology and exercise physiology at the Institute of Sport at Manchester Metropolitan University and her research has looked into female athletes including the menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptives and the female athlete triad. In recent years she's done more work looking at pregnancy and designing and implementing exercise interventions in a variety of female populations. So who better today to discuss the impact of the menstrual cycle on sport performance than Kirsty? And without further ado, it's time to welcome Kirsty onto the show. So Kirsty, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm quite excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's uh, that's what we like to hear. Um, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Professor Kirsty Elliott-Sale. I'm a professor of female endocrinology and exercise physiology at the Institute of Sport, which is part of Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, that's a very long title, which really means that I have been for the last 20 years or so investigating how um, ovarian hormone profiles, so things like the menstrual cycle, hormone contraceptive use, how that affects athletic performance, but also some of the physiological systems that underpin performance. I think that's a, it's a super interesting topic and obviously loads of growing research on that. So send me thanks to you, of course, as well. So um, we could go for hours on this, but I want to keep it as, as short, sharp and practical as we can without getting too much into that hour conversation, which would be super interesting. Um, so when we want to kick off and we want to look at the menstrual cycle in sport, can you give us an idea of, of how big the impact is of that? That's a really clever question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, and the reason why it's clever is because I think there's a bit of a misconception out there right now that um, all female athletes will be impacted by the menstrual cycle. That's just not true um, for a number of reasons. The first being that not all sportswomen have menstrual cycles. Um, so there will be possibly around half of the um female athletic population that use hormonal contraceptives and they have a completely different hormonal profile so therefore when we talk about menstrual cycles and uh, menstrual cycle phases that just doesn't apply to them at all and then from the from the remaining um, proportion of, of sports women um, hopefully the majority of them will have menstrual cycles but it is worth pointing out as well that some of them will unfortunately have menstrual dysfunction which again means that they have a different hormonal profile and again can't be sort of categorized in the same way so those who have menstrual cycles, so the, the remainder of the population, so again, it's hard to put a number on it, but say somewhere between 30 and 40% of all female athletes, those who have a cycle, not all will be affected by the hormonal changes that occur during the cycle. So we can't really do this whole whitewash where we talk about, you know, menstrual cycles in sport and, and sort of infer that, that applies to everybody. There really isn't a one size fits all. Those with a cycle, some will be affected um, and of course then need to change something in response to how they're affected. But there will be lots of sports women who really just don't notice these um, hormonal changes having a, a noticeable impact upon their sports performance. So it's it's quite nuanced, I think, you know, and it certainly is more individualized than perhaps at the moment is being portrayed in the media. And when you talk about that, uh, that kind of hormonal profile, is that something that you think that 
should be measured more often because if I if I look at my own practice, I work with uh, quite a lot of female athletes, and it's certainly not not something that we're we're thinking about measuring, right? So is that something that that sports scientists uh, and coaches could be looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's two things here. One, um, yeah, I do think that we should track um, the characteristics of menstrual function. So whether that is menstrual cycle, uh, menstrual irregularities or hormonal contraceptive use. But the second, probably more important thing is that if you are going to track and um, these cycles, if you're going to make measurements around sort of ovarian hormones and their possible outputs, then you've got to be willing to change something based on that data. So, you know, if you're going to generate um, data in that way, how are you going to use that? And I have definitely noticed within um, sport at the moment that lots more sports practitioners, athletes themselves are tracking their cycles, but are maybe still a little bit unsure and um, what to do with that information. So how to change what they're doing in response to that information. Oh, and I'm going to definitely steal some of that wisdom from you in, uh, in a few questions time so that we can uh, yeah, really tease out some details as to how they can use that information. But before we do that, um, can you explain the phases of the menstrual cycle? So for those 30 to 40% of people who are going to have a cycle, um, what does that cycle look like? Right. This is quite a visual thing, so I'll try and do it justice with, with a verbal yeah. explanation. So um, cycle lengths will vary. We talk about 28 days. That's the sort of textbook idealized number. And it's sort of that 28-day timescale picture that I'm going to describe. But just bearing in mind that actually menstrual cycles can be anywhere between 21 and 35 days and still be considered normal. So actually that bottom axis of this picture could be longer or shorter, so elongating and, and truncating, thus making the picture sort of move a little to the right and to the left. Okay, let's just jump into to what the phases are. So if we do take a 28-day cycle, um, then the first phase will be the first day of menstruation. So that's the day the athlete starts bleeding, gets her period, um, however anybody is comfortable describing that. At that time, estrogen and progesterone are low. So when you're looking at that picture, estrogen and progesterone concentrations are low. So that's the first phase, phase one. Um, you might want to call that the early follicular phase, but I'm just comfortable calling it phase one when estrogen and progesterone are low. When we tend to put sort of labels on these phases, that's when it can get a little bit inconsistent between, you know, who's describing it. So go with phase one. When menstruation starts, estrogen and progesterone are low. The next sort of noteworthy phase is around halfway in, of, during the cycle. Um, if you want to put a label on it, say pre-ovulatory would be a good label for that. It's when estrogen peaks. So at that time, estrogen is really high and progesterone is really low. So it's obviously a significantly different hormonal profile than, than when um, the athlete was menstruating. So that's phase two. Then phase three, which I think is the other noteworthy phase, is, um, again, if you want to give it a label, is the midluteal phase. This is a time when progesterone concentrations peak. Um, estrogen has a second peak. It's not as high as the first one, but we would describe those two hormones as being high during that phase. So there are sort of three distinct phases when you've got significantly different concentrations of estrogen and progesterone. Of course, it's really worth noting um, that you don't just arrive at that phase and it's the transitioning in and out of these phases. They can also be interesting. So that's the climb of estrogen between that phase one and phase two when it peaks. 
After phase two, then estrogen declines rapidly before having its secondary peak in that phase three that I described. Then after it peaks in phase three, it drops off again. And, you know, then you get back to the phase one when menstruation occurs. So I would say three noteworthy ones when you have significantly different hormonal profiles, but also just bearing in mind that there are those transition phases in between those where, you know, estrogen and progesterone are changing to get to the phases um, as I've just described. I think that's a, a really interesting insight as to how that can change uh, throughout those weeks. Uh, for anyone who's not into hormones and what they do, can you describe what estrogen and progesterone do for us? <laughs> no, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, we're going to spend an hour on this. No, no, no. Uh, just like a whistle-stop tour of what they can do. So, um, of course, these are what we call the sort of ovarian steroid, ovarian sex hormones. Um, It is worth pointing out that these hormones are also in in men, um, but they are the prevailing sex hormones in in females. Um, As you might imagine, we're talking about them as sex hormones, so they obviously have a big role in reproduction. um, And so that is their primary function. So, obviously, menstrual cycles are designed to um, prepare a woman's body for, for pregnancy. So that would be their their main function. But of course, they have a lot of sort of secondary and tertiary and and all of the other ERIs roles after that. There's a long list of um, how they act. I think the easiest and most concise way to say is that these hormones do interact with most other physiological systems. I'll just give you one example. So estrogen is um, linked as a, as a moderator of bone health. So I would say that, you know, there are estrogen and progesterone receptors located all around a woman's body. They have the potential to influence and act in other physiological systems. And so they have many other functions outside of just being reproductive hormones. I think that's, that's super interesting. It brings us really nicely onto the question of like what these uh, phases mean in terms of sport performance. So when we're looking at, at top level athletes, like how how do these phases influence the the physical outputs and maybe even possibly the like the mental and psychological outputs which they can they can give in those times well there's a very quick and honest answer which is we just don't know and <laughs> um, but I'll expand upon that because that's not helpful at all so what I <laughs> What I mean by that is, in in so much as we just don't know, I mean, from a research perspective, we have yet to arrive at a consensus where we know what we would describe as the direction and magnitude of these changes. And herein, we're sort of talking about if you have uh, X amount of estrogen, what happens to muscle strength or to performance or, or to X, Y and Z. So we're just not there yet. There isn't the volume of research to make those conclusions. And there isn't enough high quality evidence, um, even within the existing um, sort of literature and data that we currently have. So from a research perspective, we would say that we, we don't know. We can't say with confidence um, if there is a directional effect and the magnitude of that effect so we can't say which phase you're stronger in or faster in if indeed that phase exists so of course we're looking for phases where you have um, benefits obviously we're trying to find um, uh, illustrate phases where there are maybe adverse effects so obviously we can uh, limit what those adverse effects are Um, and of course I think is really interesting it may well be from a research perspective that someday we say actually there's no effect and although science doesn't really like negative or or no effect (laughs) That would actually be quite liberating, I think, for sports women. So that's sort of where we're at with the research evidence. But what I would say, and I think, you know, your question was well phrased and, and sort of left the door open for, for this sort of portion of, of my answer, 
is that, of course, that's, you know, laboratory data where we're trying to manipulate hormone concentrations and link that with a particular outcome or actually performance itself. The, the whole other side of this is the lived experience of athletes themselves. So I think that's really where we can focus our attention, particularly in, in practice. So it's understanding, you know, person by person, what is your experience of the menstrual cycle? And it goes back to this idea of tracking your cycle characteristics, but then going beyond that, extending that to mapping your own performance um, or mapping aspects of performance. So it could be, you know, strength or um, endurance or, or power or so on. So making outcome measures. At lots of different phases or points of your menstrual cycle and then looking for patterns so you would have to obviously make that investment to, to map performance over your cycle for a, a number of months then it's about looking back and going okay is there a phase or a point in my cycle where I seem to have consistently good performance or poor performance is there a phase where I'm stronger is there a phase where you know I, I seem to you know go on and on and on and I, I'm tireless and also the other sort of side to this, the, the more sort of perceptional side of, you know, are there is there a phase, for example, where you're always tired or there's a phase where you lack, you know, self-confidence, all of those things. So it's about mapping, you know, your performance. So maybe a personal best, things that underpin your performance. So maybe things that you're doing in your gym session, but also how you feel. And then you really begin to, to build up a data set. You could look for a pattern. If there's a pattern, of course, as I say, if, it, if it's something good that's happening, fantastic. Let's maximize that. If something bad is happening in a predictable, repeating fashion, then obviously let's put interventions in to try and you know limit the um, negative effects. Um, but of course, you might not see a pattern. And, and that really goes back to that very first sort of clever question you asked me of what is the impact of menstrual cycles in, in sort of sport for, for sports women? If there isn't a pattern, there isn't a pattern. Move on. <laughs> there are so many things you can think and stress about and work on as an athlete, you know, sleep, training, recovery, nutrition. You know, if you're not seeing a pattern, then it's time to, to say to yourself, OK, I release myself from this particular, um, you know, point of focus and I'll, I'll move on to, to something else. So, yeah, lots to lots to consider there, Matt. Oh, absolutely. And I think. Like the the next thing I wanted to ask was was based on something you mentioned earlier on as well the um like the adjustments to your your training or your recovery or whatever it might be so with with that in mind let's say there are patterns somewhere and you wanted to change something in your in your training do you have any examples of athletes who who have done that successfully um, well I, I can't name names could <laughs> <I laughs> you give uh, people who've done that successfully without names. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, you know, I think um, these athletes who are able to really understand their cycles, who have noticed a passion, you know, these are clearly women athletes who are, you know, really listening to their own bodies. And so that really comes with, with a little bit of power. So, yeah, for sure. Um, an example might be, a, a, you know, an athlete who feels um you know, motivation is appears to be um, something that they can, you know, ebb and flow in, in line with, with changes of um, ovarian hormones. And so knowing that there's a pinch point in the cycle where you don't really feel yourself, you don't have the same level of, of confidence that you usually would have, you begin to doubt yourself, that doubt leads to anxiety. You know, there have been athletes who have, um, you know, then worked with their coaching staff, their support staff, even a psychologist, 
to put interventions in place where before it happens, you know, there's some, you know, positive talk, there's some changes in, you know, how the, the team are interacting with each other. And, you know, they just keep that athlete buoyant before they drop off. And, you know, they found that really helpful. I think from a, a maybe a, a more physiological um, perspective, again, there's been athletes who have noticed that, for example, they always have really bad stomach cramps at a particular point. And again, they've successfully worked with clinicians um, to look for strategies that have you know, mitigated that adverse effect. You know, there, there are more and more examples. And, um, you know, again, they're, they're likely to be quite individual. There isn't going to be, you know, like I said, there isn't a, a one size fits all sort of hormonal profile. And, and equally, it makes sense that the interventions will differ. And they'll be on a broad spectrum, as I say, from something that may be perhaps a little bit more medicalized and, and clinical to it could be, you know, something as simple as you know somebody who experiences you know maybe migraines or, or really bad fatigue it's something quite practical and logistical that a coach says okay well we're gonna not train today you know wow blow our minds you know have a legitimate <laughs> day and um, we're not so keen on that in elite sport but you know it could be that they say that or it could be that they say well I understand today you're not at 100% so therefore we're going to you know take our training load or you know our approach down to you know 20 25 30% and knowing that in three days time when you're back up again you know and you don't have that fatigue or you don't have any of those migraines then you know we can we can push up you know that number again so it could be could be medical it could be logistical it could be as I say something around you know the environment being a little bit more positive and you know highlighting and you know positives and and good things that have happened it can be any number of things but I think once you've got an athlete who's committed to the sort of tracking and mapping approach and if a pattern appears I think you're quite a way down that story already. That that's already a success because sometimes knowing there are issues, that's half the battle, right? And so the interventions, you know, don't have to be groundbreaking, but I think some small nuanced changes in response to, you know, something that's highly individual can have a big impact for for that particular athlete. And it sounds super logical as well, right? That you would say, you know what, like I'm feeling bad today for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, the the really high uh, high neural drive, uh, heavy strength work or sprint work or whatever that that kind of really uh, heavy day that you were going to do, it's just not going to work. You're not going to get the outputs that you wanted. So you have a little bit of a, a, a relax and a, and a rest, and you come back in a day or two's time, and we're going to go again. Like that that seems very logical, but I can imagine mm-hmm. that can be very difficult to. Um, to accept for both the coach and the athlete sometimes. Yeah, you're right. You know, I imagine that we're already doing this um, in elite sport all the time um, in, in different sort of um you know, guises. If if an athlete comes in and says, "I have a headache today," you know, you would respond to that and you would you would change something. So it does seem a little counterintuitive to me how we've not really adopted this approach and um, the sensible, pragmatic approach. <laughs> to sports women in response to you know menstrual cycles or other sort of um, ovarian hormone profiles and I think it's probably linked with the fact that we haven't really been talking about periods and menstruation and ovulation and phases and other hormonal profiles and we haven't oh well no I'm going to correct myself there I think we have been talking about them 
Um, but in pockets and silos, you know, we, we haven't maybe realized their importance yet. So the reason why I corrected myself is it, I do get a little bit frustrated when the media say that this is a taboo topic in sport. I think that's doing a disservice to female athletes and their support staff and coaches and so on. I think we have been talking about this. And certainly my experiences is, you know, any sport that I've worked with, you know, the athletes, players, coaches, nutritionists, S&C guys, they've all been super willing to talk about it so I don't think there's any reluctance perhaps rather than saying we haven't been talking about it we should maybe say that we maybe haven't realized its value or potential until quite recently don't get me wrong people have been researching this area for more than 50 years it isn't a new area and um, I would just say there's just a really big spotlight on it at the moment um, and so I think it's just about taking the conversations we've been having a little bit like I said maybe some athletes have been tracking their cycles but it's extending it now moving it beyond talking about it into you know being proactive using that information to change something to benefit the athlete such that she can really achieve her potential regardless of any phase of the menstrual cycle or other hormonal profile that she might encounter. I think that's some some absolutely excellent advice. And before we wrap up, I wanted to quickly touch on uh, general population or potentially even youth athletes who might be uh, hearing this kind of stuff for the first time. Do you think there are any things which uh, people who are training for health or people that are just kind of working out how this all fits together, uh, are there any things that those people really need to know or adjust in their training? Or is it just a case of, of getting to know your body a little bit better and listening to those kind of signals? I would say getting to know your body and listening to the signals is is an excellent start. Um, I think, you know, sometimes in in those of us who are are just maybe more exercising for health, it's about maybe looking at it. And one of the things we we didn't discuss is that, you know, ovarian hormones, menstrual cycles, for example, um, are linked. They're a marker of good health. And so I guess maybe for, for both groups, training for health or for the elite population, if that training, um, and I, I don't want to say a load in particular, but that balance between sort of energy intake, uh, dietary energy intake and exercise en- energy expenditure, if that sort of falls out of sync, you know, we, we talk about it a lot in, in, in athletes as, you know, female athlete triad or relative energy deficiency in sport, but it is still obviously would hold true for more novice or recreational sort of exercises. If we get an imbalance, and, and as I say, we might naively fall into that and we don't have enough energy to go around, um, then sometimes, you know, menstrual cycle, menstrual function is sacrificed um, because that reproductive axis, of course, takes some energy to keep going. And if we're suddenly using a lot of energy, if we're new to exercise and we're using a lot of energy for that particular exercise, um, it may well be the case where we see some menstrual disruption. So we we divert energy away from that into our our sporting exercise or physical activity. Um, And so although we we do think of, as I say, these um, concepts of reds and um, female athlete triad just for the elite, actually we do see this type of scenario sometimes in exercisers. So Although I'm giving quite an extreme example and, you know, wouldn't be particularly commonplace, I guess what I'm trying to say is that menstrual function is a marker of good health. And for those who are exercising for good health, it's just making sure that those two things are are maintained. Um, But outside of that, probably not something that an exerciser needs to worry about too much. I would again just 
encourage them to be sensible you know if you're really getting into your training and you're really enjoying it but you find that you have like really bad stomach cramps with maybe your period then have a day off doesn't really matter if you miss one day it's about remembering that you're exercising for health and for enjoyment and just being flexible with with how you train and how you recover from from a particular session I think that's that's very good advice. Sometimes it's really difficult when you're focused in on that that one training session or maybe the week that you forget what the year or the two or three years looks like, and you're like, "Well, that one session, okay, we can we can leave that or replace it with uh, something in two days' time. That's not a big deal. Don't beat yourself up about it. As long as you're consistent over the course of all of those years, right? Like, it it's not it's not the end of the world to miss one session. Absolutely. Sometimes we just need to be kind to ourselves. And just to remember as well that rest days can really be rest days. It doesn't mean that that's the day that I don't do a particular sport or activity. It could be a day where, you know, you sit and put your feet up and, you know, there's a balance. I I don't want anybody to hear that and think that I'm promoting sedentariness. But, you know, there's a long way between, you know, having the occasional rest day from from sport and physical activity to complete sedentariness. So, again, it's just about being sensible, but not worrying about changing, you know, one activity for another on, on a rest day. Oh, Kirstie, I think that's some absolutely excellent advice and I really appreciate your wisdom today. It's been a really enjoyable chat. So massive thanks from me and I'm sure everyone has uh, really enjoyed it as well. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Um, as I said at the start, I was really quite excited about taking part today and I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks a lot, Matt. Oh, thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Kirsty for all of her hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. And the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more great sports science information, all you have to do is hit the link in the show notes and you can get into the Coach Academy completely for free for the next seven days. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.